This episode contains themes relating to child sexual abuse and suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Poddo. Cleve Hill is the highest peak in Gloucestershire, which doesn't make it very high by, say, Nepalese standards, but it still commands an outstanding view across Cheltenham, all the way to the Severn Valley. There is something desolate about its almost lunar flatness. A single beech tree, known unromantically as the single beech, stands on this plateau, lonesome and resilient. The few other trees up here have been sculpted by the wind into dramatic contortions, as though swept carelessly by an artist's brush. It was here, in 1982, that Geoffrey Prime confessed to his wife Rona that the police were hunting him for crimes against children. He was not yet ready to confess to her that he was also a Soviet mole, though that would follow shortly. Simultaneously a far lesser and far greater act of treachery. But by beginning the process of owning his crimes, Prime set in motion the trajectory for the rest of his life. For all the difficulties he'd faced, all the turmoil he'd experienced in his 44 years on Earth, his true trials were just beginning. This is the town that knew too much. I'm Nick Hilton. Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, Psalm 23, The Lord is My Shepherd, you know, yada yada, the Vicar of Dibley theme tune in other words, and Happy Holidays in Scotland. These are the things that Rona Prime was reminded of as she walked on Cleve Hill with her husband, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, I think um, what's amazing about um, Cleve Hill is, although it's uh, it's obviously quite a, a low hill in, in terms of, you know, mountains and Munros and that sort of thing, it does feel like you're on top of the world there because the land just slips away down that escarpment and you have that really wide reaching view across across Cheltenham, across the Vale of Gloucester, towards the Northern Hills. That's the voice of Rupert Acre, a landscape artist based in the Cotswolds, who has frequently painted the vista from up on Cleve Hill. You just feel completely above everything else and it provides a really nice place to paint. I think the slopes really catch the light nicely when you've got nice low sun in the evening. It really picks up the hollows and, and the tumps on the, on the landscape. At the time that his crimes against both children and the state were revealed, Rona and Jeff, as she almost exclusively called him, were happily married. By all accounts, Prime was a good husband and a committed father figure to Rona's three boys, Mark, Stephen and Craig. In the course of researching this podcast, people occasionally ask me if I've reached out to Rona or her sons. I haven't. Rona Prime, as she was known at the time, recorded her perspective on her husband's arrest and trial in a 1984 tell-all called Time of Trial. The book ends with Rona reaffirming her commitment to God, saying, I thank God that he brought me to the point of turning to him and putting my life completely in his hands. And now my constant prayer is that just as Jeff's trial is my trial, my God will truly become his God so that he can write the best possible ending to our story. But despite her steadfastness then, she would eventually divorce Prime and, according to reports, remarry. And so, as far as I'm concerned, she and her kids, if they're even still alive, deserve the opportunity to put the affair that was never their responsibility but swept up a decade of their lives behind them. 
The trial of Geoffrey Prime began on November 10th, 1982, at the Old Bailey. Prime was represented in court by the famous barrister, George Carmen. In 1981, Carmen had defended Leonard Arthur, a paediatrician, in a landmark case. Arthur had been accused of the murder of a baby, John Pearson, who was born with Down syndrome as well as abnormalities of heart, lung and brain. In consultation with the boy's parents, Arthur prescribed nursing care only, and the baby died after three days. With Carmen's assistance, Arthur was eventually acquitted of the murder charge, and a new precedent set for end-of-life care, though no change in the law was forthcoming. And two years earlier, Carmen had successfully defended the Liberal Party leader Jeremy Thorpe after he was charged with conspiracy to murder in one of the most sensational criminal cases of the post-war period. These two courtroom dramas, played out on the highest stage, elevated Carmen to legal superstardom. He was anxious about it because clearly he was, a, he was a man who was going to be sent to prison for a long period of time. That's the voice of Dominic Carmen, a writer who in 2002 published No Ordinary Man, A Life of George Carmen, about his father. There was no press reporting during the currency of the trial for security reasons. It was held in, in camera, as it's called, in, in private, so that the details of what Jeffrey Prime did in terms of spying could not be revealed. And it was only after his sentencing that it entered the public domain. And even then, the details were, were limited. Your father took on the case. Why did he take on the case? What was the story there? He was asked to. At the time, he was uh, well known as a criminal defence barrister. And I think the view, the establishment view was that here was a man in terms of Jeffrey Prime who needed to be seen to have a good defence, uh, even though what he did was indefensible, so that no one could say that uh, after he'd received such a long prison sentence that he hadn't been adequately supplied with a quality barrister. And was your father keen on the project? I mean, it's such an extraordinary case, it's sort of once-in-a-lifetime case. Was he... I, I suspect the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, because of the profile and the importance of the case. And no, in terms of the individual concerned with whom he had no sympathy whatsoever. Prime was a man who uh, was inadequate on many levels, but he happened to be a talented linguist and a diligent civil servant who, through years of, I'm sure, hard work and application, ended up in the right place for him and for the Russians, and unfortunately, in the wrong place for British intelligence and national security, i.e. GCHQ in Cheltenham. It became gradually a bigger, bigger story, because it was a huge embarrassment, GCHQ. As I say, the other element with the trial was, a lot of the trial was in secret, why was in secret, they had to avow GCHQ's stuff, and then GCHQ, the most secret, you know, secretive place, this allegedly, and there this guy who was allowed to do X, Y, and Z, including getting in and out of GCHQ, then a taxi driver. It's quite a huge embarrassment for DCHQ. That's the voice of Richard Norton Taylor, a former security editor of The Guardian. He has also written numerous plays based on transcripts of public inquiries, including both the McPherson inquiry into the murder of Stephen Lawrence and the Hutton inquiry into the Iraq war. It was used during the trade union um, ban dispute a, a year or so later, 84, uh, by uh, the union leader who said, look, the threat to security is not us and being union members, it's, it's people like Prime and, the, and they completely lack uh, security procedures. And I think they brought in random security checks after that and they have visitors going in and out of GCHQ. I think it's in the November 1982, there was a trial. That's the voice of Nick Davies, a veteran Guardian reporter. 
the press aren't allowed in, but there was a section of it which was held in public. And that included his then wife, Rona Prime, giving evidence. And so at that point, it was also clear from the charge sheet that we were talking about offences against children, sexual offences, as well as the official secrecy problems. And so when Rona Prime gave evidence, we heard this extraordinary story, really, about how after years of his spying work, the whole thing had come unstuck because of his obsessive interest in sexually assaulting underage girls. A witness had seen that the car that was involved in this attempted abduction was from this local taxi company, Cheltax, and he noticed the make of car and the colour of the car. And that meant that very rapidly, the police were able to identify Jeffrey Prime as the suspect. I suppose that I had started this investigation at the beginning of June and I hadn't stopped because we were checking everything out. That's the voice of Peter Pickin, a former police superintendent. Pickin was the leader of Special Branch in the 80s and became a key part of the team working on the prime case. And then all of a sudden in the end of October, beginning of November, we were told that the case was to be heard. Now, I don't know what strings were pulled, but they obviously, the authorities, and and I know, you know, this went through to the Prime Minister of the day, which was Margaret Thatcher, and there were issues with both the Americans and and, uh, the Europeans. They obviously wanted this case sorted. And fortunately, I'd been able to get a complete confession, which took 42 pages. So it appeared that there was no alternative but for Jeffrey to plead guilty to all the charges. And I just felt that the authorities wanted this in court and finished with. And the fact that it occurred in, in I think it was the 8th of November, I, I never had t- time to stop and think. But then when it blew, I suddenly, from being the head of special branch, where where no one knew, knew me, neighbours or whatever, because I'd moved house for this promotion, suddenly everyone realised that, hang on, he's a policeman and he's the guy on the front page of all the papers. The fact that GCHQ even existed, I think, before Prime was not, I mean, clearly everybody knew it existed, it wasn't a, a secret, but it wasn't much talked about or publicised. Those people who lived and worked in Cheltenham and, and still do and who work for GCHQ or know people who do, I mean, it's a dominant employer in terms of the community there. But everybody who works there has to find sign the Official Secrets Act and they don't talk much about it. I, I, my understanding is that at the time, beyond the immediate environment of Cheltenham, it, it was not something that was ever written about in the national press, whereas now, of course, it's featured on television. And the whole culture of openness of the security says, what MI5 do, what MI6 do, where they're based, who is in charge. Do you have a sense of the impact the kind of the consequences and it can be very vague of primes crimes i mean i'm I'm not a member of the security services and i haven't signed the official secret act in this context so again it's very much vicarious information i think the the damage was very very severe now is that quantifiable in terms of human life or the lives of others in countries then under soviet control were the lives of british agents put at risk were the lives potentially of other British people put at risk? I think the answer to that is yes. 
did people directly die as a result of Prime's activities? I think drawing a line, causal line from A to B is very hard to establish, but no doubt it caused very severe damage indeed. I mean, I think possibly the best way of of reflecting the the degree of damage is that in the appeal court, because the case went to appeal, Lord Justice Lawton told Prime that in a time of war, such conduct would have merited the death penalty. And one rather got the sense that had he had the opportunity and had the death penalty still been in place, Lord Justice Lawton would have liked to have passed it on Geoffrey Prime. So, so for how long did it kind of dominate your father's kind of professional life? A, a few weeks. My father always had several interesting things going on. And at the same time, it would involve the Calvi family. Right. But they're not linked in any way <laughs> other than that. My, my, my father thought that his flat might have been broken into and and bugged by the security services. Now, whether there was any um, empirical evidence for that or whether it was just um, a slight paranoia in relation to me, in relation to the case, I don't know. But certainly I think there was was some evidence that his flat had been broken into, but nothing had been stolen. But it could have been, or equally been the Calvi case that (laughs) caused that, because he never found out. And I don't think he ever reported it to the police, no fingerprint, what was there to report? The death of Roberto Calvi nicknamed God's Banker, was in itself one of the most sensational stories of the 1980s. Through Carmen, it intersected with Prime, two inscrutable mysteries playing out side by side. Roberto Calvi was, as uh, dubbed by the press in the 1980s, God's Banker, because he was the, the banker for the Vatican Bank. That's the voice of Gerald Posner, an investigative journalist and author of God's Bankers. He was the Italian banker who ran a, a private bank called Ambrosiano in Italy, but his main real claim to fame was that he was the one who had earned the trust of the Pope, was doing the finances, and he was the deal maker who put everything together in a dizzying array of spectacular offshore deals that even today would keep financial sleuths scratching their heads about what had happened. Before the, the death of Calvi, what was the situation with Ambrosiano and, and Calvi himself? So Calvi had built this fantastic house of cards that looked very good from the outside, was this multi-billion dollar empire stretching around the globe that had all types of investments and offshore deals and promised great returns decades before anyone heard the, the name Bernie Madoff or the great swindlers of the West. Calvi was doing his best to earn a spot in that. And slowly Italian authorities and Italian authorities are by their very nature. I'm half Italian, so I can say this slow and sometimes catching on to the, the malfeasance and the wrongdoing taking place under them. And then when they finally got going, they built this in extra case against Calvi. And as they put it together, they saw all types of what they thought was criminal wrongdoing and financial fraud. Some of it slowed up because he did have the connection to the Vatican, which they couldn't quite imagine would be involved in any of this. But when the pressure built on Calvi and the net started to close in on him, he was looking for desperate ways out, as swindlers often do. They look for new ways to pay the people that have come into the the Ponzi scheme as it is. And finally, he ran out of money. And so it was a matter of time. An arrest warrant was issued for him in Italy. He fled the country. He ends up in London, of all places, uh, trying to figure out how he's going to still make something out of this and come back alive and well. And instead, he ends up hanging from Blackfriars Bridge. So an ignoble uh, ending to a a rather unusual story, but one that leaves a ton of question marks after his death instead of resolving anything. What was not open and shut about the Blackfriars Bridge incident? 
many of the things that you would suspect in a death that's that prominent, somebody wants to kill themselves, they may do it with a lot of pills, they may do it with a, a gun, they may slit their wrist and go into a warm bath. They don't usually go under one of the, you know, the iconic bridges across the Thames and decide that they're going to, even though they have a fear of heights, as Calvi did, put a bunch of rocks and, and, and bricks into their pockets, which he had to get from a nearby yard, then walk over and sort of precariously climb onto the end of the structure and balance himself while he puts a rope around his neck and then throw himself off of this edge, hoping that it will be enough to crack his neck and the rocks will be enough to weight him down and that will be his death and nobody sees him doing it. At a time when all of his colleagues and family say, oh, he was under pressure, he was tremendously, uh, you know, wondering what to do, but he wasn't suicidal. He was looking for ways to save his reputation. So that left a lot of questions from the get-go. And then you end up with an open inquiry at the end from the initial investigation that says, we don't know, and an unusual part of British law, you know, a death inquiry that says, uh, we're not sure. We don't think so. Probably suicide, but we're not 100% sure. And you've opened the door to conspiracy speculation, real speculation, and uh, good questions about, uh, you know, was it murder or suicide? As a matter of fact, the Italians finally brought, uh, you know, 20 years after uh, Calvi was murdered, they brought a whole group of people to trial for his murder, a mobsters, uh, Italian mob. And it really wasn't so much about the Vatican, which many people thought it was about hiding the, the secrets inside the Vatican, as the fact that he had reneged on investments they had made. You know, it's not very good usually to take mafia money and then not pay it back or not give them the return you had uh, promised. They, they generally don't like that. And they foreclose and they don't bring legal actions the way that we're accustomed to it. They sort of bring the actions that take away your kneecaps or take away your life. And so that was the, the hypothesis. They brought a, a group of defendants to trial on a very high profile trial, and they all got acquitted. I'm not sure if that's the lack of evidence that the Italian prosecutors had or says more about the, the time that had passed, but nobody got convicted for Calvi's murder. Although we, and when I say we, people who have investigated it, reporters, journalists, and others, Italian journalists who have looked into it since the time it happened, are convinced, in fact, it was murdered, that somewhere in there, the mafia was involved. The question is really who gave the order and why. There is absolutely no doubt that when Calvi died, it was fortuitous for the Vatican and for the Pope and for the, the people who ran the church's finances, the cardinals who did. That's not to say they were behind it, but it was a bit of good luck for them because he knew the secrets of how badly the Vatican had behaved. Some of those secrets came out a decade later, and the Vatican had to pay money, as a matter of fact, to victims and, and the Italian government. But at the time, there was this great sigh of relief inside St. Peter's. I assure you that the man who knew where the, the bones were buried, so to say, wasn't around to talk about it. All the romantic sense of mystery, you might uh, think that a murder at Blackfriars Bridge holds quickly evaporates when you stand here in that most typical of London things the driving rain buses, vans, trains motorbikes Uber after Uber after Uber screech by in almost performative mundanity and in the depths below me the brownish grey sludge of the Thames laps near noiselessly against the shore as it slips eastward on a journey that began at Thames Head in the Cotswolds just a few miles from Cheltenham. A bad way to die, and a bad place to die. In the dock, Prime was described as looking haggard but impassive. His personal life, from his 
sexual interest in children back through to his unhappy childhood and abuse, were raked over. Those who knew him well could see this was a specific form of torture for a man like Prime, someone who had spent most of his life, figuratively if not literally, alone. Unlike other more romantic figures who had been unearthed as Soviet spies, I'm thinking here of Kim Philby, Donald MacLean, Guy Burgess, Anthony Blunt and John Cairncross, the famous Cambridge Five, Prime faced judgement almost pathetically reviled. It was hard even to see what the Soviets could have wanted from this crumpled heap of a man who would end up a flashing cab driver. But perhaps it was his very existence as human marginalia that drew them in the first place. Well, you're looking for someone with access to secrets, first of all. I mean, you're not recruiting, you know, an ordinary farmer or a merchant or a student, unless that student, of course, has access to secrets. Say, say a student in the United States, a Chinese student, whose father is a, a high-ranking Chinese diplomat. That's the voice of Jeff Stein, a former spy runner with U.S. Army intelligence, who went on to author the Washington Post's Spy Talk blog, and now hosts the podcast of the same name. And if you suss out that they are disenchanted with the Chinese way of government and life, you sense that this person might be recruitable, then using a cover uh, that you've developed, you would begin the dance of recruitment with that person. Ideology is high on the list of motivations because if you're recruiting a source based mostly on money, that means that person can be bought off by someone with more money or has weak character, can be seduced by the other side, seduced back. So in the Cold War, it was hatred of the communist system, the Soviet system, or the Chinese system, or Eastern Bloc countries in particular were, were full of ripe recruits because they hated Soviet domination. Ideological recruits are the best. The character of these these people that you, you know, is it often the case that it's people with particular personal deficits, people who had character flaws, people who were sort of outsiders in society. Now, he was claimed he was just driven ideologically and that he wasn't being blackmailed by the Soviets or anything. But is it often these kind of scruffy outsiders, slightly grubby outsiders, I should say, that get attracted to the, the sort of slight internal frisson of glamour that comes with spying on your own cause? Compromise is a major tool of espionage. If you find out that your target for recruitment has a weakness like pedophilia, you are certainly going to use that. Now, in the West, in the CIA, you don't want that to be the only motivation because someone who has such a deformed character may not in the end be loyal to you or may be impulsive, have bad habits, gambling, what we call sexual perversion of one kind or another. Uh, Anyway, a secret. If they have a secret that they don't want revealed, that's definitely something you can use to one degree or another to keep your mark in line. The Soviets, the KGB, are known historically to use compromise as a major recruiting tool, particularly in West Germany during the Cold War. They had a lot of spies in West Germany, and they would find out the sexual proclivities of a target and They might send a woman to seduce a married man, a boy to seduce a man with hidden uh, homosexual leanings. It's harder to do now because so much more, you know, sexual varieties are so much more accepted than they were. But if the sexual behavior is hidden and would be very embarrassing to the target, 
then it's definitely a tool you can use to uh, to recruit or keep an agent in line. And the Soviets have been known to use sex as a recruiting weapon. All along, there had been the whiff of resignation about Prime. It had been his decision to confess his crimes to his wife, and it was his decision to plead guilty to seven espionage counts and three counts of sexual offences against children. The Lord Chief Justice, Geoffrey Lane, who would later achieve a degree of infamy for the botched handling of the Birmingham Six case, the wrongful imprisonment of a sex set of Irishmen for the 1974 Birmingham pub bombings, handed Prime a 38-year sentence, after which he made the obligatory appeal. That appeal was handled by Lord Justice Sir Frederick Lawton, who, by a quirk of fate, had been a member of the British Union of Fascists and founder of the Cambridge University Fascist Association, before ascending to Lord Justice of Appeal from whence he could pass judgment on pinkos like Prime. As with almost everything in the life of Geoffrey Arthur Prime, the appeal was not successful. Prime was transferred from HMP Brixton, just down the road from where I'm recording this, where he had been held before trial, to HMP Rochester, situated on the site of the old Borstal Prison. He was eventually renamed in favour of the Cathedral City of Rochester, but the word Borstal became synonymous with youth detention centres until the 1982 Criminal Justice Act abolished the Borstal system, except in India, where the exported system is still in place. Anyhow, locked up there in this tiny piece of lexical history, Prime would spend almost two decades of his life. Above the Old Bailey, you'll see the figure of Lady Justice. Glistening in gold, she stands with arms outstretched, like she's measuring a single fathom's width. In one hand, she carries a sword. In the other, she holds a set of scales. For the sculptor, F.W. Pomeroy, and all those who look upon her in anticipation either of justice or punishment, she is a symbol of the equilibrium necessary in a trial. Vengeance in one hand, mercy in the other. All men will be judged equally and fairly by this glittering 12-foot woman. From ground level, though, by the Viaduct Tavern on Newgate Street, where you can get a pint for a fiver, this symbol of the duality between retribution and forgiveness is hard to make out. 200 feet above the earth, she could be just another spire piercing London's dirty sky. And like true earthly justice, her presence is almost unfathomable. In the years after sentencing save for a brief tabloid resurgence in 2001 when he was released, Prime slipped out of public consciousness. There was no movie about his life, and those few books that had been written went rapidly out of print. If you Google Jeffrey Prime now, you're as likely to be directed to a Japanese children's toy as you are the story of one of Britain's greatest modern traitors. And the very fact that a toy could be named Jeffrey Prime, you'd really believe that you couldn't accidentally name your product, say, John Wayne Gacy or Rolf Harris speaks to how he's faded from our memories. Toys R Us has made exclusive Transformers for the Western market, but I believe Japan, which Toys R Us Prime is from Japan, Japan got their first exclusive Toys R Us figure in 1997. That's the voice of Ben Meyer, who runs Transformerland, the premier Transformers collectible store. And are these kind of aimed more at, more at children? I see that this, the one I linked to as a sort of kind of giraffe trousers. Yeah, so the, the giraffe theme on that figure is based on Toys R Us's mascot, Jeffrey the Giraffe. Right. And so that's why he's got the, the giraffe yellow spots deco. So, so the Toys R Us mascot is called Jeffrey the Giraffe. That's correct. Ah, I see. 
Jeffrey Prime was a Soviet spy in the early 1980s. Oh. Um, and, and it was a huge case, a huge scandal at the time. But then it sort of faded out of public interest. And, you know, it's the early 80s. It was before kind of pre-internet. It's very funny to me that, that you would inadvertently name your kind of giraffe children's toy after a kind of Soviet mole. But yeah, no, so that was what I was kind of curious about what exactly a Jeffrey Prime toy is. But now I understand it's a, a giraffe theme. So there's a lot of, you'll find a lot of Transformers toys with the format something Prime. Prime is like a rank in the, the good guys in Transformers. So I guess they've decided that they're going to induct Jeffrey because he's helped the Autobots sell so many toys into their, their ranks as Jeffrey Prime. And so, yeah, I would say it's, it's the weirdest, most convoluted coincidence that it wound up being named the same as a, a Soviet spy in the UK. In the end, Jeffrey Prime didn't transform into an axe-wielding giraffe-robot hybrid with truck conversion capabilities, but he did transform into a footnote, a story without an ending. Before it was closed in 2018, there was a care home stood here in a grey back street of Walthamstow in northeast London. This was the place where Geoffrey Prime, the Soviet spy who was, fleetingly, a figure of national importance and derision, spent his final years. He died on 13th of August 2017, a Sunday. On that same day, 17 people were killed in an attack on a Turkish restaurant in Wagadougou, and the golfer Justin Thomas won the PGA Championship. No newspapers reported Prime's death. He had slipped out of public consciousness so thoroughly that his passing couldn't even be milked for cheap tabloid sensationalism. Soviet pedo mole dead at 79, no headlines read. The staff who looked after Prime in his final years paint a portrait of a man without history. He had no known family, no visitors. He had been diagnosed with dementia before he moved into the facility. One carer says he was known as cheeky and fond of cats and snooker, which seems kind of improbable, but after the twin ordeals of prison and dementia, it's hard to imagine what an elderly prime would look like. Another carer says he had a single photograph on his wall of a woman with blonde, curly hair and glasses. Could that be Rona? Probably not. In his final years, he was said to be very independent-minded, despite the limitations of his illness. His personal activities leader in the home says his verbal communication was very poor and that he usually used his voice just to swear at them. If he didn't like his food, he would spit at the carers. They could only calm him down with the mellow magic radio station, which he listened to constantly. And this, eventually, is where the Prime story ended. It didn't end in the attic of Laburnum Cottage. It didn't end at Hereford Police Station. It didn't end at the Old Bailey. It ended in sheltered accommodation in London denuded by time and circumstance of everything that made his story extraordinary. In the end, there would be no books, no film biopics, not even an obituary. Just an ordinary man, dying an ordinary death. This has been the fifth episode of The Town That Knew Too Much, written, produced and presented by me, Nick Hilton. The music is by George Jennings, based on The Planets by Gustav Holst. The entire score for the series is available to stream now on Spotify. This is the fifth part of a seven-part series available on all good podcast platforms. You can find out more about the show on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Just go to at the Town Pod. 
or visit www.thetownpod.com for episode notes and more information. If you're enjoying the show, then now is a really good time to leave a rating and review with your podcast provider. And keep telling your friends, family and colleagues about the show, as otherwise I'm just shouting into the void. The Town That Knew Too Much is a Podo podcast. For more information, visit podopods.com. Podopods, 